Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Zachtronics podcast, where we go behind the scenes and explore how indie games are made. I'm Zach Barth, and my guest today is Jason McGann, the creative director on Zoop, a game that's a little older than the games we usually talk about. Hello. Um, I think if you call me, if we talk about the creative director on Zoop, there was no such role as creative director back then. So, uh, although it was a two-man band, really, at Zoop, it was uh, a guy called Pete Tatsall and myself, and I was the programmer and Pete was the artist, and we used to uh, really kind of both get involved in the design. So between us, I'd say that we were both the creative director and uh, but over time it's become a specific role but back then it was just pretty pretty much anybody who could be creative was creative if you like awesome we should actually probably take a couple steps back and uh, let everybody know what zoop is so what what year did zoop come out it came out in um i think uh late 1995 and there were some releases i think uh, kind of stepped over into 96 I think it was the Jaguar version and the PlayStation 1 and Saturn. They they were in 96, but I think everything else came in 95. But So that's that's important for this because usually we talk about sort of more recent indie games. And today we're going to talk about, I guess, a kind of an indie game. Would you say that Zoop was an indie game? Uh, it started off as an indie game and then uh, it became... It, well, we got it was published by Viacom New Media, which was like an offshoot of uh, well Viacom, but the MTV networks and things like that. So it, it sort of started off. We thought it'd just be a, a PC game, you know, but then our agent at the time he had a friend who'd just gone to work for Viacom, and they were looking for new product, and then you know everything was in place for us to you know do lots of versions for them and you know things just springboarded really from just this little indie start and then it, it became i think it in the end it was on uh every format really at the time it was you know everyone that was one of the things that sort of amazed me the most i should probably explain okay so so zoop is a puzzle game how would you describe it in like one sentence uh action puzzle game okay so sort of like tetris was that yeah it's, it's yeah it's like Tetris, probably, with a little bit of shoot 'em up put in there, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, there's a couple things that I really love about Zoop. Uh, so I think, like in the past year, I really discovered it. I, I built like a, I took an old TV and glued a, a retro pie or a, <laughs> like a, a Raspberry Pi on the back and installed a bunch yeah. of emulators on it. <laughs> and years ago, I had an art book about game art, and there was pictures of Zoop in it. And it always really, it, it's very bright, very vibrant, uh, very like 90s graphic design, and it really captured oh, yeah. my imagination, but I never played it. And yeah. I'd, I'd try to play it over the years, and I was never able to figure it out. Because there is, you know, it's an old game, there's no tutorial, you just, no. <laughs> you just have to, you just play it. And it's, the, the mechanics are like slightly counterintuitive, which is enough to throw me off until I actually went to Wikipedia, read the rules from the gameplay section, and, uh, and then figured it out and started playing it and found a, a game that's really not like anything else that I'd ever seen before. And combined with, I have a, a very, you know, big soft spot for, for 90s graphic design and, and like the music. It's got this like kind of jazzy 90s soundtrack. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like the perfect fucking storm of like 90s <laughs> awesomeness. And uh, yeah. And then so the second thing that I, that I absolutely love about it is that it was ported to literally every platform at the time. Yes, so can, everyone. Can, can you name all of the platforms that it was on? I shall, I shall try. Okay. It, will, it was uh, PC. Okay. Macintosh. Yep. Um Game Boy, Game Gear. Um 
Super Nintendo, what was the Sega one? The Genesis, uh, and then the Saturn, uh, the PS1, um, the Jaguar. Yep. Uh, and it was even ported to, you, you remember them, like, almost keyring game things that you used to get? The, like, little LCD screen games? Yeah, them simple, a bit like the old Nintendo sort of uh, Game & Watch things, but they did sort of product tie-in versions. It was even ported to that. And it, w- it was also one of the first Java games as well. Oh, wow, like on a phone? Uh, it was on uh, a web page. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Is, yeah. Did they did they ever manufacture the little handheld version? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I think we sent off the code and some graphics. We even did some graphics, but we wasn't involved in that. I mean, we was involved in pretty much every other version apart from that one. Okay, you've actually named some platforms there that even Wikipedia doesn't know. So that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I'm hoping that the, in the process of this interview, we're going to get way more Zoop information out there for the historical records. Okay. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Um, okay, so now that we know what Zoop is, so how did it come to be? Uh, uh, it's quite a long story, that. Um, I started professionally in the games industry in about 1988, yeah. And on the day that I walked into my first job, which was at a, a, a small... How would you name it? It's a, a, a small 8-bit developer that was really just an extension of somebody's bedroom, really. You know, they've got a couple more rooms, you know, well, like the, the top of a house. <laughs> you know? And uh, I answered a, an advert in some trade press thing that uh, turned up at college one day. And I, I'd written some games, but I'd not really got anything published. So I just sent off the stuff that I did have. Uh, and then they gave me an interview and then a few days later I'm working there, you know, so I'm sort of in there and I'm given a project to do. And as soon as I walked in, I, I, I met a character called Pete Tatsell, who was a little bit older and he'd worked prior at, um, I think it was a, a company called US Gold, where he'd done some, um, early, uh, eight bit conversions of arcade games like, uh, what was it Boogie Boy and other games, kind of like that? But Boogie Boy was definitely one of them. And they, yeah, we were quite a character, sort of nice guy. We kind of uh, over time, uh, there were a few people there, and uh, you know, because of the, I mean, it was hard work. Uh, and eventually, uh, we we broke away and set up our own company, which was called Twilight like the movie (laughs) (laughs) and uh, we managed to get a a small gig doing a conversion of a Commodore 64 game to the ZX Spectrum and it it was hardly any money but it was just enough to keep get us started. I was gonna ask how much would something like that pay back in the late 80s? It was £2,500. <laughs> <laughs> and that was between five people. <laughs> so not much at all. But it was just enough to keep us going until uh, our next bit of luck, which was uh, an old friend of one of the other guys who was uh, another... I should name the people. Uh, you got Pete Tassel, Andy Swan, um, Mark Mason, and Stuart Cook. And they all had like a shared house, which is the first office for Twilight, which was just in the front room of uh, 
you know, it was it was a rental as well, and I think they'd signed a a, a contract saying that there wasn't that they wouldn't run a business from there. <laughs> Definitely you know? not a business. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, but you know, we had desks and filing cabinets and computer systems, and then uh, you know there were a, a couple of occasions where the ca- the landlord came round to check. <laughs> and, we had, and we had to take all all the equipment down to a friend of ours called Finley's flat and just store it all in his house for a day <laughs> and then bring it all back when the landlord had been and seen that we didn't have a business there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that it was fun. It was fun and we were young and uh, we got a gig doing uh, conversions of arcade machines for a, which was a big company in England at the time called Ocean, Ocean Software. Oh, yeah. And uh, we had a friend there, Colin Gordon, and he um, he came to us to uh, get some conversions of uh, some arcade machines. I forget what the first one was. There were a few that were uh, – what was it first? I forget. Anyway, after a while, we got uh, the – we were given the arcade machine for plotting, which were a, a Taito arcade machine at the time, and we ported that to – Commodore 64, Spectrum, and Amstrad. But the company uh, who did the Amstrad machine were just about to release a console called the GX4000 that just got released in England. I mean, subsequently, it never went anywhere, but at the time, it was quite exciting because we were doing, you know, the first console game. So we ported uh, plotting to this console as well and uh, and then that came out and then we went on and did a lot more work for ocean but uh pete and myself really liked plotting we we there were two that were released almost at the same time the one called plotting and one called puznik and uh, i don't know if you've seen puznik no puznik's uh it's a similar sort of thing i think if you looked into these arcade machines it'd probably be designed by the same designer Okay. Is Puznik and Plotting, but Plotting were more kind of actiony, and well, I don't know if that's fair to say. Uh, they both had action elements, but they were both prescripted. The levels were prescripted. The key difference, I think, you know, between them was uh, that one was uh, it incorporated a gravity, so you had a stack of blocks, and you'd shoot uh, a block into either the side or the top you kind of rebound it off the roof and it'd take out blocks at a time. And it had a similar kind of thing where if you had a particular colour block and when you shot it, if it hit one of uh, the same colour, it would destroy them and then swap. So the, the base mechanic of hit the same colour until it hits a different one and then return that block, that was uh, something we liked in plotting. Yeah. Uh, so I what. I won't say we ripped it off because I'll end up <laughs> I'll end up getting kind of a lawsuit, but yeah. we you were inspired. Uh, <laughs> it's ins- okay. Yeah. We, we know we know a lot about game mechanics inspiring other games at Zactronics. Uh, well, so. It was definitely inspired by plotting. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and then after that we went on and did a load of different arcade machine conversions. And then we ended up our big time was WWF WrestleMania. We did <laughs> <laughs> WWF WrestleMania for uh, the Amiga and the Atari ST and the 8-bit machines. And we were silly enough to not ask for royalties. <laughs> and oh, it, God. And it came out and went to number one for ages. So and we, we didn't see a penny. I think we, we made, you know, just basic wages off that. So 
after that, we started to ask for royalties. <laughs> and we, you know, things things got better then. And then, uh, anyway, we did that for a few years, and then eventually, uh, Pete and myself broke away to start up. Oh, we did a key thing at the end of Twilight was Alfred Chicken, which was oh, the, yeah, <laughs> which was the first game by game that we'd made, and we both enjoyed doing that. Uh, so uh, we broke away, and the first piece of work we got was to. Uh, do the Japanese version of Alfred Chicken, and that gave us enough money to start up Hookstone, which was, you know, when we did Zoop, that was our development company, Hookstone. How many years were you at Twilight? I was there from 1989 until 94, I think, and we started okay. Hookstone uh, in 94. And how old were you uh, when you started uh, Hookstone in 94? Let me think. Well, I was born in 1971, so I would have been 23. Okay. Oh, wow. So then uh, the Twilight was when you were very young. So. Yes, very young, did, yeah. Did you go to college for, ga- for uh, not game stuff, because that wasn't a thing then, for like computer science? Uh, no, I didn't. I, uh, I just used to play games initially. And then uh, my dad was an electrician, and he was quite a technical character. So uh, I was never afraid to tech things apart, you know, so... <laughs> You know, I mean, there's many stories of me as a child taking things apart. So anyway, finally, I got a computer uh, Spectrum. I had to sell my BMX bike to be able to <laughs> afford a Spectrum, which is like a Z80 based thing. For people who don't know, a, a Spectrum was a, a Z80 based, as just really kind of cheap. Uh, you know, I think you could get one for £100. Uh, super cheap sort of 8-bit microcomputer that you put into your telly and yeah, colour graphics but it was very popular because the, you could get loads of cheap games on cassette and then you know it was even more popular because it was easy to pirate the game because <laughs> you could just have a 90-minute cassette with 30 games on it so when we'd go to school you know we'd be trading these games and uh, <laughs> I always uh, always now, how did I start? I, I liked the fact that also there was magazines. There was a bit of a culture around the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you you could get, uh, like, RAM kind of uh, tweaks, pokes, I think they called them. And uh, it was just like a, a memory location and then, you know, like an 8-bit number. And uh, you'd get two or three of these that you could. So you could load up a spectrum game. And then you could uh, put these tweaks in, and then you get infinite lives and things like that. Oh, okay, like a game genie, but yeah. more manual. Yeah, kind of, you know, oh, that's like great. A, a manual game genie. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And they had a, they'd have a code listings in the back of the magazines too, right? So the, you could type did, in the programs. Actually. Yeah, yeah, you used to get um, sort of, you know, really low quality, kind of almost paper mache looking leaflets <laughs> stuck in the middle of the, um, you know, magazine with thirty pages of hex listings. And you'd, <laughs> you'd, you'd kind of, you know, you'd be typing in, if you imagine typing in hex listings uh, to about 32K, so you would like, so oh, God. Like, you know, so 32K's worth of numbers you'd type in. Uh, and then, don't, uh, don't make one error. <laughs> no. And, they, and then after you've typed it all in, you kind of, you know, you, you run it and, uh, you know, you, you pray that it worked. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it did, you know, and, uh, and then... But that was a hex listing. So the next step was to figure out what the hell this hex listing is, you know. And then uh, through some interviews in the same magazines, uh, 
with people who were making games at the time. I knew that you needed to learn Z80 machine code to make a game. So I'm thinking on Z80 machine code, and then I had to get a book. So there were a few hurdles I had to overcome, and finally I got a book about Z80, and then I, I didn't understand a word <laughs> word of it. You know, I'm like, oh, God, I don't understand any of this. And uh, But after a while, I, I forced myself. It was the... It's because I really wanted to do it that I, I kind of, you know, I forced myself to continue to read this book until I understood it. And then after a while, it started to see, sink in. And then and then as soon as I got something running, you know, even basic, you know, like, you know, logic, really, and a, like a sprite routines and things. As soon as I got something moving on the screen, I was kind of hooked. And, and, then, uh, and then I thought, I'm going to make a game. And I had about... 20 abortive attempts at trying to make a game before I finally got one made. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to hit the big time with this. <laughs> and no, nobody were interested in publishing it. But it it was useful when it came to getting that first job I mentioned there. Yeah. You know, so I showed them this game. Which it was a total derivative of a, a hit game at the time. It was, you know, it was competently done. It wasn't, yeah. you know, I mean not bad good enough to get a job so yeah yeah good I enough got, to count indeed that's certainly cheaper than a comp side degree <laughs> indeed yes yeah. yeah you know okay so we'll, we'll jump back to 1994 and uh so you guys started your your new studio hookstone and yeah. you ported that you did the uh, the japanese version of alfred chicken yeah and then how did was zoop next uh well what happened while we were finishing alfred chicken was we decided that we were gonna kind of break away and just you know, have a small company with just Pete and myself. So we knew that we needed some product. So uh, both enjoyed plotting. So we tried making, you know, something that was a mix between plotting and uh, Puznik, you know. Uh, and we, we completed that on Game Boy. And then uh, we didn't find a publisher for that because Game Boy stuff were getting really expensive because you had to buy all the carriages up front and things like that. So there were, you know, were not many companies in England, if you like, would want to take a risk on, on that. Oh, like to publish that, you mean? Yeah. So yeah, because they'd have to pay the car, like the fees, like the licensing fees or whatever, and the the cost of making the cartridges. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, because you had to. I mean, say if you wanted to publish it, you had to go. I want fifty thousand copies of it. And oh, because Nintendo manufactured them, right? Yeah, they they manufactured them. You paid them up front. So you paid, <laughs> so they made all the money without even going to the shop. So you kind oh, wow. of, you know, and then, so I go, we have 50,000 kind of carriages. So they'd make them and then they deliver them. And then it were up to you to sell them because they so made their money there. Definitely need a publisher. Indeed. Yeah. Otherwise you could go broke very quickly. So we didn't, uh, we didn't get a publisher for, I think we called it puzzle time or something like that. But the, some of the cut scenes in it ended up winding into sort of other products we did. So it kind of got took apart and then used yeah. in different places over time. And then nothing happened. And then we did uh, Alfred for the Japanese market. And then we looked at, because the hardest thing about the puzzle time was that it still used scripted levels. And that ended up taking most of the development time. So we decided that uh, we wanted to somehow figure out a, a way of randomly generating the levels yeah and uh i think we tried various different things and uh i think 
we had the blocks coming in from the top, so it was just like the top section of Zoop. I think it was almost, I think it was eight blocks across, and you okay. just you just fired upwards, and that was like a prototype, and that kind of worked. But you know, other stuff started. We had a couple of other games that we were trying to get off the ground at the same time, so that didn't go anywhere. And then we worked on some other designs, and then uh, Pete went back to it, and he took the eight and he reduced it to four, and he kind of mirrored in the cross formation and at that point it got interested again and then we put a pc version of that together and then we showed it to our agent at the time a guy called john cook and john had been the first person to see tetris outside of russia oh wow yeah so he was you know a big puzzle game fan and he, he really liked it he really liked it and he thought you know he could sell it and a friend of his had just got a job over in uh, New York at Viacom, and John sent, what was his name? I think he was called Eugene Jarvis. He was quite a, a character in the Spectrum scene, early doors. It's another character who's been around forever. Uh, but John knew him and then uh, was able to get a meeting with the Viacom people. And uh, they were interested. So, and then suddenly, I mean, also at this point, we were working in, uh, we was back in the bedroom, sort of working in uh, Pete Tassel's back room at this point. <laughs> so, was scrunched up in his in his spare room with his weightlifting equipment in one corner and then two desks along the back wall, <laughs> you know, it was quite interesting. And then suddenly, uh, Zoop, John got a deal for Zoop, and then suddenly... I think he kind of bullshitted the Viacom people that we were, uh, you know, that we were, we were, you know, some kind of big, big scene kind of developers from England, and uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and uh, he, he managed to get a really, really good deal, a fabulous deal, and then uh, and they wanted to move quick, so suddenly we had loads of money, yeah, and then uh, we we got a, uh, we just went hog wild and got a big office and you know oh, wow. t- top of the line desks and silly things like that did they uh did they so yeah did they ask for all the different ports at once like that was your initial agreement uh most of them a few more were added over time okay but But they somebody was thinking okay so i guess the question i have is was was somebody thinking that this is going to be the next tetris oh absolutely yeah okay and so then we need we need to get it on every platform we can yeah yeah so yeah that i think it was the majority of the platforms I mentioned, minus the Jaguar and the handheld thing and the Macintosh, I think they came later. Okay. But, but there was definitely PlayStation 1 and Saturn um, right from the beginning because we, we had some of the first... Because Viacom MTV, they got loads of clout, so we got uh, the PlayStation 1 development boards from Japan, sort of, you know, so suddenly we've got these you know prototype playstation ones with all sorts of kind of non-disclosure agreements and things like that so oh, wow. it's okay. quite exciting and uh uh so we had some good money for the first time and uh and we staffed up and got a few more people involved how uh, big did the team end up being we got pete myself uh and then you got uh chris white uh and cliff davis who was a programmer both of those programmers uh pete's wife came on as the um person who ran the office basically uh and a, another artist um ian bowden 
who I'm still friends with today. It's RV and 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 then uh, some producers were sent over after a few months <laughs> from uh, New York. So there were some characters who came over, and then after that, a, a playtesting division was installed as well. They just one day sent, I think, four people from the playtesting division in America, and uh, they came and sat in the office. And then, wow. you know, and then with technical guy as well, it was uh, yeah, we went from nothing to quite a big company. What uh, kind of budget did they give you for the whole project? I think we probably got about six hundred thousand pounds for the oh, wow, okay, for the development across all the all the okay. plat- platforms, and we also had a royalty deal as well. So we actually were looking at getting royalties. So oh wow, okay, yeah. so that's over a million dollars in. Yeah, yeah. U.S. money, and, and that's plus they also sent over people that they were on their payroll. So that's that's a pretty big project. Yeah, yeah. We have four. Yeah, the producer guy was called Matt Welton. It was uh, it was a great character. Uh, it was a joy to work with Matt. Actually, if he hears this, hello Matt. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the playtesters, uh, I never heard from again. Really, so they just sort of came <laughs> over. They, they reminded me of the you know Scooby Doo. With yeah. the with the van, yeah, yeah. they were like they were like the, Sco- the Scooby and the, and the gang turned up and did the play <laughs> testing. <laughs> they kind of kept to themselves. They were nice people, but you know, we never I never really got to be friends with them. But Matt, you know, I did with Matt because I, I had to work close with Matt, so that was good. Yeah, it were it were an interesting time, but it was very difficult, you know, workload because uh, if you imagine that team, so we got two programmers. I was programming Pete and ian were doing graphics and we were doing you know all of those versions and yeah i think in almost the end, all of them came out in 1995 yeah i and think we got them all ready got them all ready to go and then uh just released them in one go i think <laughs> wow okay uh so we're gonna we're gonna spend a lot of time digging into some more technical things but really quickly so what happened like how did zoop resolve and what happened after well it came out and uh they uh, one key thing to mention was uh, we originally sold the game. They wanted to redo the graphics. They didn't like the graphics. Yeah. So, so they, that, that was the, the the DOS, like the, the PC version graphics they wanted yeah. to redo. Okay. Yeah. If you'd have seen it originally, it would have been uh, like uh, some kind of warrior characters in hats, like Viking, little Viking characters <laughs> coming in with colorful hats on. I think it was <laughs> that was one of them. I think we did a few, and then there were blocks that rolled in into certain colors, and then finally they got a, a design team. Uh, I think they were called Hagashi Glazier, if I've pronounced that correctly. But they was a New York design duo, and they'd worked on uh, this puzzle game. No, this this actual kind of like a Meccano, like a a surreal Meccano set, which was very <laughs> colorful. What was it called? It was called Zolo, which was the origin of the Zoop name because it sort of it came from this Zolo, and then it became Zoop uh, because these characters did the design. And they uh, oh my god, and that looks that looks so much like Zoop. That's crazy. Yeah. So if you, huh. you look at that, that's the same designers. So they just ca- carried on that that style essentially into Zoop. Wow. Okay. Sorry, that distracted me. I, I need to get one of these sets. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, they're cool. We, I think I've still got one somewhere. That we got oh, some wow. sent over. But that was another good thing about working for MTV. You were forever getting loads of stuff. I mean, we were getting big, huge, red and stimpy stuffed toys and crazy posters and games and things. It oh, was wow. it was fun. Do you have any pictures of your office from that time? 
no. No, oh, too bad. <laughs> to, yeah, I never thought to do that. It was uh, it was a mess. <laughs> if you just imagine a kind yeah. of you know a, a, a nice office that was made <laughs> a complete mess with you know crap everywhere all over it, and that's oh. what it looked like. <laughs> that's great. Okay, so how well did Zoop do commercially? Uh, uh, it did it did well enough for us to see a lot of royalties. We you know, but not well enough for a company the size of Viacom to carry on so it was very lucrative for us as a small company oh that's but, great but not so much for uh you know a big company so and i think they found that with games in general because they stopped doing uh, yeah games after a, a couple of years okay uh so what did you a quick summary of what happened what did you guys continue making games as uh the the studio or yeah we did another game after that we did um a game calls we did a lot of um uh pitch demos we were trying to get a a top-down strategy type game like command and conquer i think it was that that type of game we had yeah. an idea for something like that so we were trying to get one of those made we were trying to get a racing game made but in the end, we got uh, a, a gig to do a sequel to a game called The Sentinel, which is uh, a kind of, I don't know if it's, it's probably a cult game, but it's kind of, uh, we did Sentinel Returned, which was uh, like a surreal sequel to this surreal game. So like a crazy game, really. It was, that was a lot of fun to do as well. So we did that, but that took a while to make. It took, I think, two years in all. So it was uh, 97 before we got anything else out the door. Okay. Do you want to dig into some technical things? I mean, so you guys, I guess that we should have some closure, right? I mean, at some point the studio shut down. Yes. Um, what happened is eventually uh, we ran out of money, basically. Uh, uh-huh. We spent all the money and uh, the, the team broke up and uh, a few of us went on to form a company called Mobius Entertainment uh, because we took on a couple of other employees, actually, I should mention that after zoop so there were a few more of us and then when it broke up there were a lot of people out of work and a number of us got together and put a demo together for a, a 3d kind of shoot 'em up game like you remember what was it mdk from shiny oh yeah definitely yeah that so we tried to make a game sort of it was like that uh and that became a kind of a, a cross between that and lara croft uh, okay but then we started up a new company which became Mobius Entertainment, and then we ran for a while with Mobius. That was the longest I've been as part of a company. We started that in 90, late '97, and that ran till 2004, when we became Rockstar Leeds. We did some games for Rockstar, some ports of Max Payne for Game Boy Advance, and they liked liked our work enough to kind of invest in the company, and we became Rockstar Leeds. What was it like being a British game developer in the '80s and '90s? Um, I mean, the only game development I really know about, sort of, at that scene was the northern kind of area of England. So you got like you got probably a big development scene going on around. Well, I know you did, and down in uh, southern England, so you had like hot spots of games development around the country, and one of them was certainly kind of London, obviously. But then you had you know uh, Brighton, Isle of Wight, and I think Portsmouth and Southampton sort of areas. I think. And then up kind of northern area, you've got um, the ocean that we used to work for. They were as Manchester. Uh, and then we worked for a company called Gremlin Graphics, and they they were in Sheffield. So 
when when we went to see publishers early doors, the furthest we were going were kind of Sheffield and Manchester. Uh, but as uh, on the development side, I mean, I worked in a place called Harrogate in in Yorkshire, and for some reason, there's like a hell of a lot of small companies started up. So when I first started, I went to work in Harrogate uh, for a company called Enigma Variations, which was set up by a couple of characters who'd been making games for a while. And uh, but there was, uh, I think, three or four different little kind of game shops just in that small town. This is like a town that you can walk from one end to the other <laughs> in ten minutes. You know, it's a small town, but for some reason, you know, there's like a number of games developers there, and there's new ones popping up and closing down all the time. So you could kind of stay there, and I, I kind of stayed there until '97. So I started in. Or at 88, and then up until about 97, say like a 10-year period, I was only ever in, you know, Harrogate, and uh, you know, like, and I knew all the people I worked with had, you know, grown up with in Harrogate. So it's curious that you had this, you know, like small group. But the other curious element of it is that nobody was really originally from Harrogate. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're like we're all in Harrogate, but nobody really knew why. You know. We, could come to you live in Harrogate. Anywhere. Why Harrogate? You know, I mean, you could have done, and and it's like one of the guys, Stuart. He'd come down from um, uh, what it, Aberdeen. He'd come. He was a Scottish, big, big Scottish guy. He'd come down. He was the first, you know, real Scottish guy I've I'd met. Like a big, you know, Viking of a bloke, really, and uh, lovely guy. But you know, it, it, when you first see him, you're like, my God, you know, this looks a massive bloke. Uh, so you know, growled at him. And he were into kind of heavy metal. For the, so it was like a, a Scottish guy who's into, you know, heavy death metal. And you just think it's a scary character, but it turns out to be lovely. And then, uh, so you've got him, and then you've got uh, Mac Mason, who was the son of uh, a, a guy who worked down the mines. What were it? Selby area, which is like a mining town. I don't if you don't know Not anything about England at this time, there were mine. If you were working class, especially lower kind of working class, you were probably working in the mines. Yeah, if you were around sort of Selby and Nottingham areas. Yeah, and uh, you know, so there were a lot of people in my family, and uh, you know, people I, I met who's you know came from mining. But then there were some kind of you know major political problem, and they ended up closing the mines. You know, much to the kind of, you know, anger of all the mine workers. So you had all these riots between kind of uh, mine workers who've, you know, gone on strike and the kind of, you know, all sorts of, you know, like dark stuff happening, you know, with like people going without food and all sorts. It were dark times. And, uh, but the thing that happened was because the fathers were all out, you know, battling for work and things, the kids got kind of, you know, left to their own devices, and a lot of them turned to programming computers. Yeah, funnily enough, because they got the cheap eight-bit machines, and then subsequently the sixteen-bit machines. That you know, you got this small pocket of people who were self-taught to program, who suddenly became the games industry in the north. And then, uh, and then we had a character, Andy Swan, who um, he he now works for Sony. But he back then he he came originally from Luton, and uh, you know so we've got a Londoner, and we've got a Scottish guy, we've got uh, you know the son of a mine worker, I'm the son of an electrician, and then you know lots of crazy characters who come from all these different backgrounds, but for some reason they'd all just come to Harrogate 
And then you've got a few other firms around the players with a similar story. So it's like a weird thing going on. But that went on for about 10 years. I don't know if there's much of a, a Harrogate games industry anymore. It's sort of, I think over time, a lot of companies moved to Leeds, you know, when they the kind of northern capitals or to York. So they moved away from there. But it was a very interesting time. It was quite good because we were young. Uh, we were all single, so we'd all go out <laughs> drinking and, you know, socialising. And it were, you know, it were a good laugh. And I really enjoyed that period. And because you didn't have an internet, I mean, there was no, if you wanted to learn something, say that, you know, say there was you were stuck on a problem or something, then, you know, there was no internet or any documentation or anything. So we'd go to the pub and really everybody would know everybody else's business and everybody would try and work out everybody's problems and things. And it was very social, but, you know, not like digital social, you know, real social. So where we'd all go out and kind of, you know, get drunk and play pool and solve each other's <laughs> Talk problems. Talk about assembly and programming, and you know, a, the usual. Yeah, oh, you know. That's great. So, yeah, so you've got the kind of the, the classic sort of Yorkshire <laughs> character who's, propping up the bar in a Yorkshire pub, you know, with his dog. And he looks around and there's these crazy young people talking about this alien language, you know. And it were, uh, it were, yeah, it were a great time. And then, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of them characters are still making games in some capacity or other. Uh, a few have passed on now, so I'm starting to get to a point where you've got kind of people who are, you know, these absolute characters who were there and they're kind of, you know, the they're dying off now, so <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It were a very interesting time. I think at some point somebody should I don't know document the early games industry in yeah. England, probably everywhere really, because it's uh, just just the early days of game development. I think you've got a few books here and there on it, but none who get you know specifically into it. Yeah, that would be quite interesting. But it was uh, yeah, it was a very interesting time, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was quite hard work though, quite hard. Cool. <laughs> Okay, uh, I'm going to jump back now. Uh, so we're going to focus in on Zoop. Uh, there's a lot of interesting design questions. It's exciting that you're both you know, a programmer and yeah. a designer because that's also what I do. And, um, and a lot of the, the parallels you've described with you know, how when, when you have a small team, everybody does, is a designer and that. Like, I feel like that, that's a lot like the indie game scene now. Yeah, teams were too small yeah. to be really yeah. siloed back then. The fun. Yeah, it's it fun is. When, it's very hands-on. Because uh, it's small. Yeah, so you kind of a small team. I think up to I think you can go up to about five or six people, and then beyond that, you start to need yep. producers and managers yeah, and things that's, like we, that. We've, we were never bigger it's, than it, like about six people. Yeah, that's the best place to be if you want if you want fun developing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my my first technical questions are going to be for you as a designer. Okay, so what do you, what do you think are the most successful and unsuccessful parts of the design of Zoop? Ah, uh, okay. Uh, the successful parts. Um, yeah. Like, what are the stuff that worked really well that you, you might want to replicate, or the stuff that was not the good stuff that you would absolutely want to discard in the future if you were making another Zoop-like game? Oh, uh, yeah. I'd probably make <laughs> it very different if I made it again. Um, I think, for me, the I'm not sure. I mean, it kind of worked, but the kind of the 4 by 4 grid that you were in in the middle and you moved about, mm -hmm. and you needed up, down, left, and right, and then mm -hmm. I, I, I always thought that were a bit fiddly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you can get used to it, but it's always a bit fiddly, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you really don't need all those grid squares, I guess. I mean, it's interesting that you talked about the game first being linear. Yeah. Because it seems like, aside from the fact that if you had 16 in a row, it would be really hard to select your row. Yeah. But it would be the same game. Yeah. 
But yeah, you could configure it however you liked. I think we even talked about having different configurations, but it always ended up as this four, you know, lane kind of cross section. But we did have, uh, say, six at the top and six at the bottom at one point, and two at either side and things like that. But it, I don't know. It just sort of ended up as this four thing just to get to get the ball rolling. I think. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I'd probably relook at the control mechanism if I made it again. Uh, but I don't know exactly what I'd settle on. But I don't know because now if you've got a touch screen, you can just touch the line. So. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, so you could probably improve on that quite a bit, or even a mouse. You know, I don't know. But I'd probably at least kind of explore a, a lot of different kind of ways of selecting the the line. Yeah. But I think the mechanic of having the color, and then kind of you fire the color and it kind of smashes the similar ones and then returns the non-similar block. I think that yeah. that core mechanic is very strong. And uh, but it's uh, so I think Zoop is essentially that, but with the weapons attached. I think yeah. the weapons are quite good. I think the the choice of the weapons was pretty good. And so by weapons, you mean like the the special abilities that can like clear the board or, or destroy an entire row? Yeah. So I okay, think you got like a a saw which could take out the whole line, mm-hmm. and then uh, a little flower which was the color, and then a bomb which would blow up a section. I forget what the others were. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia has them. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but there, there was a number of weapons, and uh, they were quite well chosen. I thought. Yeah. Have you seen any other games since Zoop that have that uh, that mechanic of destroy all the things with the matching color and then swap with the first thing that doesn't match? Um, I've seen some iOS games that... Uh, oh, interesting. There's one that's pretty much even text the color schemes. I mean, it even looks like Zoop. So there's a few out there of people who've copied the game. <laughs> one person's copied the game almost exactly. And then <laughs> another few change the graphics and things you know but uh i've seen yeah a few attempts on variations of soup but only recently really i think uh, yeah in the last few years interesting um another thing that i want to talk about is the randomness yes so the you know the you, you're trying to clear the board as it's constantly filling and if the game like it's it's on the surface random but if the game were really completely random it would be pretty impossible to play because a lot of the game seems to be you know like when you when you get combos when you're able to get a chain of things and collapse them yeah uh that, that's better and uh, but that's that's largely driven by the randomness of when they come in yeah that's probably another sort of uh element that we worked quite a lot on uh, because if if a color comes on so if there's no colors so the the line's totally empty. It'll um, choose any randomness. So it's like any of the colors. And then there's like some kind of weighted probability of whether or not it be uh, a weapon or one of those spring things that clear. There was a smart bomb thing, I think, that you had to collect four springs. And once you got four, it cleared the whole board. Uh, but if there was no blocks in a line, it'd just randomly choose any color. But then... If it came to align with something already, there'd be a way. It increased the probability of it being the same color. Really, the more that it counted in the line, yeah. So it was kind of, it was rigged to, kind of bring on kind of more than you know two or three in a line, really, just to yeah. so you could get them combo bonuses if you like. Do you know how players reacted to that? Because it seems on the surface like something that players might react poorly to. 
Like, a player who didn't understand would be excited that they were able to get these combos, but a player who understood might feel that it was unfair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Did you ever run into problems with that? No, never, no, nobody. Oh, okay. We never actually talked about it. It became almost like a, you know, like a little trade secret, the random algorithm. Uh, <laughs> you know, so we never talked about how it actually worked, so nobody actually yeah. asked any questions on it. So, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we, we ran into a problem with that, like that, with a, we did a card-based tactics game called Ironclad Tactics, and we, we, you know, it's a card game, so we shuffle your deck and deal it out to you, but the, the decks are very small, and we didn't really spend a lot of time building mechanics to let you search through the deck, because it didn't work with the real-time nature of the game, yeah. and so we, our, our random shuffles are not random, in that we, we have, a, we, we, ran, we shuffle the deck like 50 times, and then we pick the, like, the least bad shuffle and give you that one, <laughs> like, we've never really talked about that, and it's uh, kind of, like, that's kind of bad, like, we had to do that because of poor design elsewhere in the game, that it really yeah. couldn't handle the randomness. But in card games, that's a very difficult thing. And you, you see, like, in Hearthstone, right? Like, in ways that Hearthstone innovated over Magic is to remove the the part where you get screwed if your your deck happens to be shuffled in the wrong order. Yeah. And, yeah, it's a similar problem. Yeah. That's cool. So did did you get a lot of feedback from players? Because that's Zoop came out pre-internet for the most part. Yeah, it was the internet was just breaking, really. I mean, it was... Uh, there was an internet, but there wasn't much going on at that point. Uh, um, I think no. I think they they did do focus groups, but that was mostly <laughs> about the look of the game. Uh, Interesting. They just sort of decided they liked it, so the, <laughs> it was good enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we give them. I mean, the game was complete pretty much when we give them it, apart from the uh, the menu system and the graphics. So. And the game never really changed, you know. I mean, okay. So they just changed the graphics. So they just decided they liked the game really, and then just yeah, just focused on how they were going to make it look and how they were going to market. It. Did you guys do a lot of playtesting when you were designing it before you got your publisher? Oh yeah, uh, Pete used to just play it nonstop. He played it for weeks. Yeah. Okay. Did you have other people play it? Uh, a few others. One of the programmers used to play it. Uh, Pete used to play it, and I used to play it. And John Cook really liked it and would play it. So. Okay, interesting. So, but it was largely just the development team. Yeah, yeah. So, so what? Like one thing we try to do when we when we develop a game is to pull in as many people from outside as we can, and like do like Kleenex testing, where just as much as possible, bring in somebody who's never seen it before, sit them down, yeah. and see how they react to it. Yeah. And oh, there was none of none of that back then. It was <laughs> we just got on with it. <laughs> I think uh, probably along the lines, you know, a few of us friends who turned up at the office and stuff uh well the office the ins uh, uh pete's, pete's back room you know so pete's friends some of pete's friends probably played it but nobody seemed that interested apart from the developer so we wasn't sure if it'd be you know if we were even going to sell it because we'd, yeah. we'd done quite a lot of you know games and not sold them so we, yeah. we didn't know if it were going to go anywhere but, uh, and in your mind, it was all up to the publishers, really. They were the people you were trying to appeal to. Yeah, back then, that was the gig, really. What you did, well, you made a demo, you put together some kind of generally rubbish design document, you know, that you never followed <laughs> anyway, you know, and then and then just try to bullshit the publishers that, to give you some money. And then if they did, you just kind of just panicked and tried to get the game done. <laughs> that was how it was really but uh i say that it's, uh, but you know everybody was skilled and everybody was dedicated so uh you know it was fun because it was a fun environment i think that rubbed off on the game itself you know yeah no, that makes a lot of sense 
Okay. So with the art, you said it was done by the outside design studio. Do you know what their inspiration was? Um, well, I mean, I guess the Zolo, like yeah, you mentioned. I think um, when Viacom uh, did the deal, because the art style and the marketing was completely done by Viacom. You know, we were essentially given the, uh, we wasn't given any say on how the game was going to look. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, so it was like they were going to design how it was going to look. I think that was part of how we'd sold it, really. Yeah, it was part, yeah. It was part of the kind of deal where they would handle the look of the game in-house. And, oh, okay. And uh, I, I think we, we got complete say over what the game was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so th- they had no problem with how it w- They never tried to actually change anything about the game, but there was very specific about how they wanted it to look. So and they tried a f- interesting. They tried a few different things. They were talking about doing like an alien puzzle game. <laughs> you know, I think that's probably what led to the uh, Gasha Glazier. That uh, they started off thinking they were going to try and lo- as if an alien had come to Earth and tried to sell its puzzle <laughs> its puzzle game. Yeah. So a puzzle game made by aliens. Made by aliens, yeah. Wow. So that was one of the ideas. So but then obviously they couldn't figure out how an alien puzzle game would look. So <laughs> the next step was to go and get the craziest designers that they could think of. Yeah. And uh, and it kind of does look like an alien puzzle game. Yeah. So that was Yeah. Uh, so uh, and the marketing director I think had seen or knew the Hagashi Glazier team. And, oh, okay. and had their child, I think, had one of the Zolo sets. So uh, they got in touch with them, and then before you know it, they were working on the game. But they'd only done... They'd never made a video game before, so they yeah. they only worked in print colours. Yeah. So a big th- it was a big thing for them to get the exact RGB you know, oh, you know combinations, because <laughs> they were used to using... What the little kind of you know color cards? I forget what they're called. Yeah, yeah. You know the Pantone colors. Yeah, the or Pantone yeah. colors. Uh, they were used to that, so they were forever asking what this <laughs> Pantone color would be in bloody you know RGB, and then and then it'd be different on one monitor than another monitor, uh-huh. you know. And they just had to sure it drove them crazy. Yeah, absolute mare. And and then it's the wrong shade of pink. <laughs> yeah, really, really fussed over that. Wow. And their stuff is really all about color and like colors and shapes. And- and yeah, I think. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so they they had a, a real time getting that right, and in the end, we had to get so uh, they decided on the color of everything, and then we just got print media. We didn't get like an email with a JPEG in it. We kind of you know we got a kind of FedEx box with these printed out kind of design sheets, and then <laughs> and then an envelopes full of Pantene colors, you know, Pantone colors, or whatever. <laughs> And then these are go to just enter these into the computer. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, so, and then these are go to the artist, and then the artist would have to sit there going, trying to match. So they stick them on the screen and try to get the RGB that were closest to that. And uh, oh, God. that's how it was done. So they never saw the actual kind of that was the digitization, if you like. It was. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, the artist sat down just trying to guess the correct RGB. Uh, wow. So is that what Pete worked on? Yeah, he did that. Okay. But he was uh, he. He wasn't a big fan of the art style uh, because he'd, he he preferred his um, his uh, soldiers with the, with the <laughs> thing. And it was a lot more fun actually as that, but it was a different thing. It became, yeah. it became, you know, over time I've come to quite like how Zoot turned out, but you know it was difficult at the time because you know Pete's all of Pete's work had been taken away and, yeah. and replaced with the Cassie Glazier stuff and. 
you know, it was quite, uh, it was quite an emotional blow for him because he, you know, put a lot of work in and then, uh, but yeah, especially cause the studio was just the two of you guys at first. Yeah. So, you know, Pete was upset and then, uh, but I think in the end he, just, he, he came around in the end, but you know, it was quite difficult that initial bit where they basically said, we don't like anything you've done, Pete. We're going to totally <laughs> replace it. You know. <laughs> wow. Uh, what about the music? Is there a similar story? Do you know where that came from? They wanted a jazz sounding soundtrack, so it was jazz. I think they talked about they quite like craft work. Uh, oh. Yeah, they were talking about craft work and jazz, some kind of combination of. Or, oh, but he ended up more jazzy in the end. But yeah, but it, but we were just given the sound. We had no say over how it was going to sound or look. Oh wow! You know. So they just shipped you it on a whatever the most analog format they could find was. Yeah, and... on the PC we got a just some WAV files to play, and uh, that was that. And then those same WAV files were given to a number of uh, sound designers who put it on each of the consoles. So we got, oh, yeah. so we got, you know, it always started. So the original sound was the sound that you hear in the PlayStation 1 and uh, PC versions. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was, that was the raw sound by the eyes. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think it was actually put together by jazz people i don't know uh yeah but well, it's interesting because back then you couldn't just play like you said you couldn't just play wave files on on everything like you needed to convert it to you know some kind of like like midi like music yeah and uh, so all the platforms sound distinctly different yeah so it was uh i think there was about three sound engineers in the end uh one guy did the 8-bit format uh one did but you have to put sound effects on top so yeah, there were yeah. there were about three sound designers. So there were an original team who did the original uh, soundtrack, and then it went to sound designers, and they did the sound effects and ported the, uh, the you know the live version. I forget. I don't even know who or how they did the original version. But then it went, and it like you say, it was put as MIDI and uh, put over to the Game Boy and the Game Gear and everything else. Cool. Okay, uh, so next we're going to shift to, I guess you'd call this the marketing side, which makes a little bit more sense uh, now that we know that the marketing was done independently of you guys. Yeah. So uh, so one of the things on Wikipedia, they have a little section about the Opti Challenge. Oh, yeah, yeah. What? Okay, so as far as I can tell, that just refers to like deliberately, ag- like visually <laughs> aggressive art. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's the story here? Um, uh, well, again, uh, there was no such thing as the Opti Challenge. What happened is Higashi Glazier just designed the game, yeah, and uh, that was what they delivered, yeah. And then for the for the later levels, you know, people were finding it hard to see, you know, so they'd go, well, we can't see the game, you know. So then the marketing department spun that into Opti Challenge. So instead of actually going back and making it so you could see the game better, you know. <laughs> Spun into some marketing sort of spiel. <laughs> oh my god! So it was entirely marketing. Yeah, yeah. Was there ever discussion of fixing it? Uh, no, I don't think there were. They're just like it's. Did they even? Did they tell you that there was a problem with it, or did they just do that on their own to resolve it in their mind? Yeah, I, I don't think we were involved at all. I mean, I mean, they might <laughs> they might have told us, but then so, suddenly <laughs> there was the opti challenge thing. There were also, I remember there was, uh, they'd also designed a game over sequence, yeah, mm-hmm. which was the whole board would kind of, uh, kind of, how would you describe it? It looked like it had been flushed 
down the the toilet essentially it, oh yeah, yeah yeah so the whole thing would kind of rotate and kind of spiral into the center and there were no way on a Game Boy you were going to be doing that. So, yeah. <laughs> or even on a PC at the time. So it was uh, there were. I think there was that, and probably a start sequence. I forget what it was, but there was some kind of you know two technically difficult things, a couple of technical <laughs> di- difficult things that got dropped from the designers. Uh, did, did this make it into any of the platforms? Uh, I think some of it made it into the PlayStation One. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but even then, you couldn't get like a sub-pixel kind of yeah. rotation. It always looked quite, kind of crap, you know. So uh, <laughs> they wanted a very clean image, and you weren't going to get that kind of thing going on on the PlayStation 1. They never touched a computer in their life. <laughs> no, uh, no, literally, I don't think they had. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I'm going to guess what the answer is to this next question. But uh, so America's favorite time waster? Oh, yeah. The marketing department came up with that. There was a yeah. there was a poster that was like a doctor's chart. I don't uh-huh. I don't know if you've seen that. There's no. There's like a patient in a bed with loads of illnesses that are all derived from Zoop, and it were like it were like uh, if you've got these symptoms, then you've got Zoop, yeah. And it's America's biggest killer of time, or whatever. Oh wow! Yeah. Do do you, do you have like an image of that? That would, you should send that over I, if you can I find it. I probably do actually. I probably do. Oh, that's brilliant! Yeah, I'll send you that. Yeah. So the the other thing I thought was really funny about that is for it being America's favorite time waster, you guys are British. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that never got mentioned at all. Yeah, oh, <laughs> we were just the oh, the source of the game. Yeah, we never. That's great. The, we never really. It was a via, It was going to be a Viacom thing. Yeah, and uh, but that was apparent. It wasn't like they did that. That was, it was all up front. They said, you know, we really like your game, but we're going to change how it looks, how it sounds, and we're going to completely control the release. And uh, yeah. you know, but they did agree to having our little kind of company logo on the, on the game and things. So you know, and and there was very nice people, you know, but there was very, yeah. very specific about how they were going to go about market yeah. marketing it, you know. And they gave you lots of money. They did, which was the best <laughs> bit at the time. It was quite good, uh, you know. So suddenly, and then after it came out, uh, and then we started to get royalty checks. I remember it was the first. I remember one day we got a. Uh, a fax through which were just from the accounting department at MTV and it was uh, and then you know so we were watching this come out and then suddenly it was just a, a report on how much they were going to send us on royalties and it was something like 400 grand so and we were like <laughs> wow. fucking hell we were rich you know <laughs> so we were dancing about you know I think they were probably the over at MTV it were probably just some kind of guy who were you know just calmly putting through this thing you know to just, just <laughs> to inform the uh you know the developers about the up-and-coming royalties and then if you cut to our <laughs> office we were screaming about you know <laughs> <laughs> wow that's amazing okay um so with the the commercial success of the game i mean it sounds like it did i so i would have guessed that it didn't do that well because i'd never really heard of this game it's not something that a lot of people remember or talk about no um, no but when I searched online, I actually found a lot of people who were playing it, and apparently it did well. Do you know which platforms were the most and least successful? Um, yeah, I think the Macintosh hardly sold any. Uh, okay. you know, <laughs> just like now. No, but that was not surprising. <laughs> uh, I think the Game Gear, I don't know. I think it, it didn't do amazingly well. Uh, the Game Boy did quite well, uh, and the Super Nintendo and the Genesis... I think okay. Yeah, I think some most they they all did kind of average, but I think the standout ones 
well, the Super Nintendo and the Game Boy and uh, the uh, PlayStation 1. Okay, so this, the platforms that sold better had better sales. Yeah. Interesting. What about the PC version? Uh, I, I don't think it did amazingly well. Uh, I think the most of the money we made was from those versions I mentioned. The three. Yeah. Yeah. I think it did. Huh. It did okay, but it didn't do amazing. So one of the other things I learned was that the game was rented for free at Blockbuster. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that, did that? Did, did you think that contributed to the success? Uh, possibly. I mean, that that was another thing I didn't even know until that I'd, <laughs> that that was put on the Wikipedia thing. So I don't <laughs> really? know. I don't know anything about how the market did. We just delivered the masters, and then that were it. They they did everything. So wow. uh, I think yeah, that was just some kind of thing that they came up yeah. with. But I think that did improve the sales of the super nintendo version that's that's funny it's, it's funny to imagine just shipping a game and just having you know like shipping it and have that be it i mean compared to now where you know we, we have to manage all of our own marketing for for indie stuff and you have to you have to constantly update your game <laughs> no the, like it's, none of it's the, very different none of, yeah, none of yeah. that you just you don't get to do that on a console yeah no, i mean the games hardly even got play tested really as well you know <laughs> not really compared to now i mean you know it's yeah. like you know, I've worked on games where, you know, there's a, a huge team of playtesters playing it for months and months, uh, but not not with that. I mean, you, we had four playtesters who uh, tested it for, say, two months, maybe three months, uh, but they were doing all the versions at once, you know. Oh, wow. So I think uh, because I think cause, because it was a simple game, you know, I mean, the program yeah. was fairly simple. So, you know, yeah. uh, once we got the bugs out of one version, we ported it pretty much to the rest. Do you know if any bugs made it into like release? Let me think. Um, I don't think anybody ever tested the Game Boy multiplayer version because you oh. you had to have four Game Boys and this silly <laughs> hub thing that everybody's wire clicked into. Uh-huh. And I don't think anybody ever did it. <laughs> I'd be surprised to learn <laughs> if anybody ever played. Zoop <laughs> multiplayer on Game Boy. Yeah. Oh wow! I'd never, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, there's a there's a multiplayer in there, um, so I would not be surprised to learn there were bugs in that because I don't think anybody ever tested it. But uh, oh, that's amazing! Yeah, so if anybody tests that, there's probably if it crashes, it's uh, you know, it's because I never got a bug report. On that. <laughs> uh, okay, I think that's all I have for production questions. Um, so technical. So you're a programmer, which is exciting. Yep. Um, which which platforms did you program on? Uh, I pretty much worked on every one to, to okay. some degree, but the versions I completely wrote were the Game Boy version. I completely wrote that, and then that was ported to the Game Gear. I uh, co-wrote the PlayStation One with the other two programmers. In in, in fact, other than the Game Boy. The Game Boy Mono version, I wrote that completely myself, and then uh, we collaborated on everything else. Okay. But I think, uh, yeah, so the versions that got produced in-house were the Game Boy, Game Gear, PlayStation 1, Saturn versions, and PC, yeah. And the Macintosh guy, he came and sat in our office and ported it, the PC version, to the Macintosh. And a, a, another small company of Friends Bowers worked on the parts to Super Nintendo and Genesis from our code. So we just, they, they wrote the graphics routines, essentially, and uh, we uh, supplied the code. They probably rewrote it, you know, but we kind of, they had the whole game to, to work on yeah. from the beginning. So we had the complete code 
sort of uh, from the PC one. The piece, well, it's, it kind of went through. So there were like a Game Boy version, and then there were a PC version, and then there were a Game Boy version again. So it kind of got bashed about between a few formats, and then uh, after those initial formats were made, everything else was ported from that. So the code was just translated into whatever. I think there was what? C on place okay it, that's what i was going to ask yeah what was it written in uh game Boy were obviously written in the z80 like cpu uh and then the game gear was at full z80 um the playstation one and saturn they were written in c as were the pc in fact yeah all the other versions apart from super nintendo which was i think 65816 sort of a 16-bit version of 6502 i think it's the same process that we used in later versions of the apple 2 it's like a, a a version of the 6502 that can be switched into a 16-bit mode so the the registers become 16-bit but it's, it's quite a fine art to program it's quite difficult yeah you know <laughs> so it's like because uh, you'd have two assembler you know so in the in your assembly code you'd have to put a command in there which we're going to switch the whole processor into 16-bit mode and then back out of it so and you know the lower half of the registers of men remain after it's swapped back to 8-bit it was quite fiddly and then there were some things that you had to do in 8-bit mode and some that you had to do in 16 so it was quite fiddly and the the genesis was 68,000 which you know it's quite a dream to program really in comparison to 65816 <laughs> whatever it is and then uh, the rest were done in c which were the first c that i'd ever written Oh wow! <laughs> I would not like to see that. <laughs> you know, like absolute appalling. Scene. <laughs> the first C written by an assembly programmer. Indeed, so yeah. it's just like a direct translation of assembly yeah. language to C. Structured programming, what? <laughs> yeah, everything yeah. global variables, the whole lot. Yeah. Know? Oh, that's great. Uh, did you remember any other technical details that were really challenging or interesting? Um, the biggest challenge for the. Uh, Saturn version was just getting any documentation about how the hell the <laughs> machine worked because it, you know, I mean, and and to start with, we got a development system and no technical support about how to get the thing working. So we got this development system, and then uh, I think Cliff, Cliff, it would just put on Cliff's desk, and Cliff had to get <laughs> it to work, you know. And I think it, it, it was just looking increasingly worried for about you know like two <laughs> weeks. After two weeks, he just turned around and went, "I can't." I don't know how to get this thing to work. <laughs> so. It was notoriously difficult, right? And the doc, I was, there was literally an article on Hacker News about this, like yesterday, about just how somebody got one of the Saturns, was a programmer who was tasked with kind of figuring it out. And <laughs> yeah. like the documentation was kind of poor oh, and oh. there wasn't very much at first. Yeah. You had, uh, there were two, it had two processors. Uh, uh, and, you know, there were kind of, there was no handshaking, real decent handshaking between them. Uh, and I think they probably had separate memories. Uh, it, they were just, it was just like a three or four machines crammed together and, uh, you know, with no real, like, overall design going on. It was like a bit of one arcade machine combined with a bit of this. And then the, the, I think it was very powerful for sprite-based games, but when it came to 3D... It was. It could only really do 3D because you could warp the the kind of the corner points of the sprite to have oh, have like yeah. a quad, and then you know it'd have really bad artifacts to do with perspective, and you know, but generally very poor 3D machine. But you could kind of do it. So it it was very difficult. The Saturn was very hard to get going, really. But then when we got going, 
uh, you know, it was okay. And the, the PlayStation was easier. Uh, I, I don't really remember having many problems other than getting the, because we got, when we got the PlayStation boards, we got these like full-sized kind of PC boards, I think two of them. And uh, you had to fit them in a, speci- a specific spec of PC. Uh, oh, yeah. You know? uh, and then the boards were so long that you needed a like a full tower case. So we had to get a full <laughs> tower case and these two big boards. And then, wow. and then the, it had loads of jumper switches on there. And we got this this uh, kind of photocopied kind of A4 sheet of uh, jumper placements. And half of it was in J- Japanese and half of it's in English. And you couldn't really figure it out. But, you know, there was no jumpers on there and it needed some on to work. So I ended up just trying every combination you know i think it took like a whole weekend to get the bloody thing to work at all and then finally we got that working and then you know it was uh and then we got we could compile some code and get it working and uh yeah it, it, it were quite a breeze but then there were a big problem because sony had decided that there were going to be no 2d games no 2d games weren't allowed yeah so it had to be 3d in some way so viacom had to kind of battle with Sony saying, look, we're making a, a very flat-looking game. We, you know, we, we can't really make it 3D, you know, not, yeah. not easily. So without completely redesigning it, and we've just got it designed by some top designers. <laughs> they hardly know PCs. I don't know how we're going to do this. So that rattled about for a while. So the look of the PlayStation version kind of, you know, went through all sorts of, you know, uh, tests and you know backwards and forwards until Sony agreed to this kind of part 3D look to it, which was essentially the game. Yeah. When I look at it now, I think it's it's overbaked really. I'd, I'd prefer it if it was if it looked like the PC version. I think there's too much. Yeah, stuff. they're like really over rendered 3D looking yeah, shape, but they're yeah. still sprites, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's all still yeah. sprites, uh, but it was loads of frames. It's like you know hundreds and hundreds of frames. But wow. I think it would have been better if it had just been, you know, with, say, a really polished version of the PC one with lots of yeah. nice alpha particle effects and things. It would have been much nicer. Uh, the thing I really don't like about the PlayStation 1 is the front end. I don't like how it kind of turns around and, you know. Oh, yeah, the, the controls. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. I, I, I think it was just a mistake. It would have been, if we, if you did it these days, no one would have cared. We just have done a flat game, you know. So what? It's yeah. a flat game, and we'll put some particle effects in, spruce it up a bit, and polish it a bit more, uh, and that would be great. But uh, no, they had to have it all 3D, and that ended up burning a lot of time away, and uh, it was quite difficult though. So, what's your favorite version of Zoop? Oh, like is, is there a canonical, like the the canonical version? I think probably the PC version is the okay. the best all-round version. What I would have liked to have seen with the P, I would have liked it to have come along a few years later, where we could have used some kind of, you know, some nice alpha particle effects and things like that, just to spruce it up. When I look at it, it's a bit clunky, yeah. Yeah. So I just think if you, if you took that very same game and then kind of polished it, you know, really nicely polished the whole thing, yeah, it would probably stand up, you know, still. But at, at, when I look at it now, it's a bit clunky. It's a, You know, it shows its age, really. Okay. Um, we're getting towards the end. A couple more questions for you. Cool. Um, so what I want to talk about, which I think we're in a unique position to talk about because you're still in the games industry, is sort of how the games industry is similar and different from the games industry, you know, back when, when Zoop was made. So 20 years ago. Oh, it's 
completely changed, completely changed. Uh, well, I've been through a kind of few phases. I mean, when I first started, it was kind of uh, very cheap. I mean, the games on the 8-bits that I began work on were like, you know, a couple of pounds, so like two or three dollars, you know, so they'd be cheap games and we'd make them in. Some of them we made in two weeks. But, you know, it's like the uh, development schedules would be like two weeks or six weeks, you know, and six weeks were a long time. It was like an epic game, you know, <laughs> six weeks, you know. So uh, we did a couple of epic six weeks games, but mostly we worked on two or three weeks and uh, and it was just quick. But we were young and time seemed to, when I look back, I can't believe that we did that in two weeks. You know, because it seems a lot longer, uh, you know, it, when you remember it. But, yeah, two weeks. But we were young and it seemed to last a lot longer than it did. But that went on. I think that's probably similar to your kind of iOS stuff now where you're s- yeah. selling it for 70, you know, like a dollar or, you know, whatever, 79, that kind of thing. sort of cheap. Yeah. So it was like that then. And then the console started to come in, first the 8 bits and then the 16 bits. But you had the 16 bit machines. So the budgets went up. And then, you know, some people had spent six months and or a year on a game. But the the model was always the same. Uh, you either did conversions, so uh, you kind of phoned up one of the publishers and said, do you want us to port any of your, you know, arcade machines to any formats or take, you know, basically just any work you've got, really. And then, <laughs> you know, can we have some? <laughs> and then, uh, you know, if they were kind, they'd give you some work. And uh, and then you'd, you'd, you'd build your company up a little bit by bit really and then you get a close band of people and uh it was like the money wasn't great and then when it got to the 90s around zoop was started to you know the, the budget started to increase and then uh you know the time and you know it got quite strained and i think you'd be spending so we started off spending two weeks on a game and then you know like you know less than 10 years later we're spending two years 18 months two years on a game and then when we got up to rockstar they spend like four years on a game you know and you just think my god hundreds of people yeah you know it's ridiculous so it kind of went from so i've seen the whole spectrum really from you know just one person two people you know up to small teams of five up to working with the kind of rock star people on you know hundreds of people all working on the game everybody's doing like a little bit you know and uh you know there's some people doing some bit that as people don't even you know another person in the office doesn't even know who this person is you know never spoke to him and he's doing something on the same game so crazy spectrum of stuff but now i'm more back to where uh, a kind of small team the team i'm working with now is uh you know just uh six people so i'm back to the hookstone days sort of team size but then uh you know there's a lot of you can get a lot of help now, so we're using the, you know, the. I think we're going to use the Unreal Engine. So it's, uh, it's, you know, so much of it's already done. So you can kind of concentrate just on the game itself. So it's a, yeah. it's a different thing again now. So it's becoming uh, the technical aspects are, you know, I won't say easier or anything. It's kind of different because the scope of the games is so much more. Yeah. You know, so it's it's still the same, but it's kind of radically changed at the same time. You still after you still trying to achieve the same ends, you know, you try to make a good game that people like, you know, so it's, it's always that as a staple. And then, uh, you know, but the technicalities and the scope sort of, you know, expands and contracts with the market room. Cool. That's really great. Okay. So our, our sort of last question that we usually do is what is your, your favorite tool for game development? Oh, and this is interesting too. Cause I, there'd be, I guess the question would apply to now, but also to 20 years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, 
20 years ago, it would have been the PDS, which was called, what was it? Professional Development System was it was the first kind of cross-compiler. So you'd have a, an early IBM PC and then an interface card that plugged into whatever you were programming. And then, you know, just, just this distance, because before that I'd been working on the very same machine. As uh, And if I get a crash, I'd lose work or I'd have to reboot the whole thing. But then eventually we got to a point where we've got a PC connected to the machine that you program in and if it crashed you could just send the program again and that was a revelation to me at the time i thought it was absolutely <laughs> fantastic so i'd say back then it was that but uh in modern times i'd probably say uh c plus plus really just the, the, the language you know it's took it's took me a while but i i, I kind of know I, I went so i'd not touched so i worked in um assembly language up until about 1995 when we did soup that was first c and then shortly after that we got into c plus plus for sentinel returns and then you know it's so i've been working in that now for nearly 20 years so it's uh, i'd say c plus plus because it's never not been able to do what i wanted to do really yeah so yeah that's never the problem anyone says with uh with c plus <laughs> plus <laughs> It does too much. That's the problem. Yeah, you've got to kind of, uh, I don't know, so you've got to bring yourself in. You can kind of get, you can get away with the fairies a little bit, can't you, with C++, but you've got to kind of keep focused on what you're actually trying to do, you know, instead of some kind of ridiculously complicated solution, you know. <laughs> okay, uh, that's all I've got. Is there anything else you want to talk about or anything else you want to share? Yeah. No, I think we covered almost everything okay. there. All quite interesting. Yeah, quite great. interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, you're more than welcome. Yeah, okay. Take care. And yourself. Goodbye. Bye.